Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoke podcast. Um, I love newsletters, of course. Uh, Daily Stoke is a newsletter. If you didn't know that... Uh, well, you should definitely subscribe. Daily Dad is a daily newsletter we do. There's a bunch of newsletters I like. I've gotten Maria Popova's Brain Pickings newsletter for many, many years. She just renamed it uh, The Marginalia. I like Emily Oster's Parenting Newsletter. That's a great one that I get. Um, I love Tim Ferriss's Five Bullet Friday. That's a great one that I get. One of my researchers, Billy Oppenheimer, has a great newsletter that I love uh, that you can sign up for at... Uh, billyoppenheimer.com. I like Matt Levine's newsletter for Bloomberg Money Stuff. I like The Dispatch, uh, David French especially. I love Andrew Sullivan. I love Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter, uh, Letters from an American. I just love newsletters. Uh, they're great. Um, it's a great way to get information. They're not filled with ads. It's not a bunch of stuff to click. You read it in the browser. You read it on your phone. You print them out. Just a newsletter I, I love. It's been a great way for me to learn over the years. And of course, been transformative for me. My, my reading list newsletter, which I started like a decade ago, is now a bookstore. The Painted Porch Bookstore here in Bastrop, Texas would not exist if I hadn't started that newsletter where I just recommended my favorite books that I read each month, which I'd love to have you sign up for uh, if, uh, if you haven't. And, and again, Daily Stoic being the newsletter that fundamentally changed my life. Um, 
and is now the largest collection of Stoics anywhere in the world. So uh, one of the fastest growing newsletters uh, in recent history has been Morning Brew, uh, sort of a media business newsletter supposed to give millennials, young people, uh, like a, a rundown of everything that's happening in the world. And my guest today, Alex Lieberman, is the co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. He just sold a majority stake of it uh, to Business Insider this year for a reported $75 million. It's a huge newsletter. He was an at age 40 under 40, Forbes 30 under 30 recipient. He has a podcast for Fidelity Investments. He's talked all over the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Business Barista. And of course, sign up for Morning Brew at morningbrew.com. It also happens that Alex is a student, uh, recent student of Stoicism. I saw him tweeting about it and we connected. And we were gonna, uh, you know, you meet people and they go, hey, you wanna have a phone call? We should connect. And instead of doing a 20 minute perfunctory phone call, I thought, uh, why don't we just record an episode of the podcast and we'll just talk about Stoicism. We'll talk about life. We'll talk about newsletters. And that's what we've got here in this conversation with Alex Lieberman. I think you'll like it. And uh, I was glad to get to know Alex through it and uh, enjoy this combo. Let's start with your introduction to Stoicism, because I'm always curious about how people heard about it and and maybe what struck them about it. Yeah. So, you know, I've known about Stoicism, Stoicism for... um, a fair bit of time, I want to say, I don't know, four or five years. And I think I actually first came across it when Tim Ferriss had referenced, uh, you know, a Seneca quote or some quote on Twitter. And I had this perception, right? I, like we all create stories. I created sure. the story of what stoicism was without even knowing what it was. And the what story, was that story? Yeah, the story that I created was stoicism sounds like it's, uh, a derivation of being stoic. And that is the exact opposite <laughs> of what I'm trying to achieve because, you know, for context, I grew up like in a Wall Street family, uh, not super, uh, like pretty uh, unemotional. And for the longest time, I've actually wanted to do more to tap into my emotions and be an emotive person. And so I just created this very simple story in my head of like, I'm trying to be less stoic, not more stoic. Stoicism is based off of being stoic. Therefore, I'm not interested in stoicism. And so that was my story for the longest time. And then what happened was uh, I did this speaking engagement, I don't know, six months ago. And the guy who arranged it um, as a thank you for for me speaking, he sent me a book. Um, And honestly, it was so nice. Like I'm... I really am not sent books when I'm sent thank you things. And it was like actually the coolest thing to just get a book in the mail thanking me for my time. And what he basically said is, um, you know, I read this as I was trying to gain more clarity in my professional journey. Um, and I really loved it. And I think you'll love it too. And so what the book was is it's this beginner's guide to stoicism tools for emotional resilience and positivity. And what's it called? It's called the beginner's guide to stoicism tools for emotional resilience and positivity by Matthew Van Nata. Okay. And it's like a little, it's like a little handbook size thing. And it, it, um, has like 150 pages. And so I know this book. Yeah. He's, he's sent me this before. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 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 And so this was kind of like the re reminder to me, the thing that 
that um, re-upped it. And I think the reason I actually started reading this was I was feeling particularly lost. Um, I had been doing a lot of soul searching on kind of like how I want to spend my time. And this book was on my bookshelf and I picked it up one day and I read the description again, which was tools for emotional resilience and positivity. And I think I looked at that word positivity and I was like, this isn't, this isn't, this breaks my story. This isn't part of my story of what being stoic is. So maybe there's a difference between stoicism and being stoic. And so I broke open the book. I went to the dog park with my dog Rambo for two or three hours and I just read the whole thing. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I think that's a that's actually an interesting marketing thing you brought up, which is like so sometimes people will question like certain decisions that I make in in how I present work or videos I'll do or whatever. But yep. that like the idea that every customer or every person has a story and that this story is often limiting in some way and that when you present something or you put something out in the world, you're not just having to represent it as it is but you're also having to anticipate potential objections that people might have and uh, present yourself in a way that you either don't threaten or you, uh, you, you don't meet those, uh, those reservations. Like for instance, my, my book, The Obstacle is the Way, deliberately says nothing about stoicism totally. uh, on the cover because I found that stoicism, people had the exact impression that you said uh, and so if you, if you, if you put stoicism, let's say in the title, uh, although I obviously did this later with the daily stoke, but at, up front, you, you are often limiting yourself. And so that's a, that's a very interesting story. Well, and what I like about even, you know, I have daily stoke in front of me right now also, and it's like, at least for me, and I would assume there are a fair number of people like me because that, uh, what I ended up doing is after reading this book, I, I have a podcast of my own and I did one episode on basically my learnings about stoicism from reading this book. And I had so many of my listeners who basically wrote back saying the same thing that they were like, oh, this is so interesting. I've heard of this, but I assumed it had to deal with being emotionless. So I never thought to dive deeper. And so, I mean, even in Daily Stoic, right? Like on the cover, you have the 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. To me, that provides more flavor that potentially um, counteracts the the narrative uh, that I and many people have. But yeah, I think it's in a lot of ways just like a branding question more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I say that in the intro of The Daily Stoic that the, the phrase Stoic philosophy is like perhaps two of the least appealing words in the English <laughs> language combined to make a super unappealing phrase. And so if you want to reach people, which obviously you want to do with a book, but you definitely want to do if you have something you believe in that you want people to, you want to reach people with, you have to find a way, if not to subvert it, then to anticipate and address. And you, you just don't want to be running into a headwind. You want to try to find a way always. Um, just like I'm sure with the morning brew, if you're like, like there's something sort of light and nice about the name that's not like uh even though it's a serious email it's it's not uh it doesn't it's not like ugh this is something you're going to dread doing in the Oh morning. totally. And and by the way that's like why we spend so much time in the early days especially but even today on subject lines, right? Because mm -hmm. like it, it's it's like the goal with writing as well, right? It's like when you write a sentence your goal is to get someone to read the next sentence and it's like you know, if your goal is to get someone to to learn and benefit from 
the principles of stoicism. It's to get someone to be willing to actually learn what those are. And uh, like for Morning Brew, the number one thing that determined if people were going to read our whole newsletter is if the subject line was enticing enough to get them to open. And we would test our subject line. We still do it. Um, where at, uh, at five in the morning, Eastern time, we send four batches of emails to a group of uh, 10,000 people. And it's four different subject lines. We let those go out for an hour. And then at the end of the hour, it's 6 a.m. We see what the difference in all those subject lines is in terms of open rate. And then we send the remaining, call it 3.4 million uh, email addresses, the winning open rate, because that literally is, was the difference of called 50 to 100,000 more people reading it a day. Right. So what do you think hit you about stoicism other than this idea that, yeah, you're very, very repressed and, and now, uh, now stoicism is going to open you up. What, what do you think, what do you think hit you about the philosophy that, that, and, and maybe why it didn't hit you earlier? Um, so here's my, here's my honest take on it, which is, you know, <clears throat> after, after we sold Morning Brew in late 2020, um, call it four months later was when I moved out of the CEO role into the executive chairman role, which is the role I'm in now. So I'm not in the, the day-to-day of the business and I'm spending more time creating content, working with my co-founder on like high level strategy. And I felt, I, I honestly, I felt directionless and I felt like I was in this circular reference of a story that I had created. And I was basically trying to figure out how do I get out of this circular reference? And kind of like the, 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 what the story was, was, okay, we sold the company. Uh, I thought money was going to make a big difference to my happiness in life. It has not. It is not going to be a crutch anymore for like, try, basically for doing things to get money because money will give me happiness. You know, I've been given the freedom of time now and I don't feel any better. This sucks. <laughs> that, that was kind of like my circular reference. And, and I, at the same time as doing that, I had all these doubts that about like, what does the future hold for me? Like, I don't want to be the, the 28 year old who peaked at 28. I don't want to be the one trick pony. I don't know if I could build another business again. Did I get lucky? Like th this was the narrative I was telling myself, right? And it's so different from, I would say people on the outside, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, those guys from Morning Brew built this amazing media business. They bootstrapped it for five years. Like th they're incredibly talented. And that was totally not the story that I had. And, and so that's why I think I went on this exploration to, to stoicism because I was like, I was like, this sucks. And what I'm realizing is basically we, we all have, from my perspective, two realities. We have the reality of what actually happens in the world, like objectively what occurs. And then we have our story and our perception of what occurs. And I, I'm tr and I wanna figure out how I can gain clarity around my story and my perception and get myself out of this circular reference. Um, and so, you know, reading about stoicism, I think to me, actually was... Uh, you know, I'd spent time studying mindfulness as well. And to me, stoicism, I almost thought was a great bridge of some of the things that I've learned in call it eight years of doing therapy. 
So like traditional uh, sure. Western uh, psychological practice that I would say is very much about like labeling, naming, and prescribing. And then mindfulness, which I would say can be very high level, ambiguous, um, up for interpretation. And for me, at least my my what I really loved about both your book and this original book I read was it it brought specificity to, to some of these higher level concepts, right? So like the idea of basically like how focusing on controlling the things you can control and not focusing on not controlling the things you can't control, right? It's like it's so obvious, and I think there's so much in in both Eastern and Western that talks about this, but I just found it to be very um, approachable when reading Stoicism in a way that made sense to me and it was practical. What did you, so I assume that that the business was was making uh, a good chunk of money. Yep. Did, what did you think that suddenly tens of millions of dollars was going to change for you? I think part of it was that um, I... I had money anxiety in general growing up in the sense of like, I was afraid to spend money, um, you know, especially after when, when I was a junior in college, my dad passed away. Um, and I kind of like had made this promise to myself that I would be the person to bring in money for my family. Um, and I had anxiety around like the fact that everyone in the Lieberman household was cash outflow and there was no cash inflow. And, and so I think in my head, the story I told myself was that when I have some large windfall of money, that money anxiety will go away because I'll feel like I am able to provide for my family and provide for myself in a way that I will not have any sort of money insecurity or anxiety moving forward. So you suddenly actually get like more money than, than a person could possibly need. What, what does that feel like? What, what actually does change? I'm, I'm always fascinated. I've not gotten a good self-aware answer from a single person from just sort of regular successful entrepreneurs yeah. up to like legit billionaires. But I am curious, like, so suddenly, you know, there's nine or 10 figures in one's bank account. What, what changes? Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is not a whole lot. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's also, a, 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 that really is a function of values, right? In the sense that like, I just, m I don't place a lot of value on buying very expensive things, right? Like I was actually talking to my executive coach today and he was like, what, what do you want when you grow up? And I was just like, I want to have a, a family with three kids. I want to have two homes, one in like the tri-state area, one in Colorado would be awesome. I'd love to take great vacations with my family. Um, I'd love to, and I'd love to have new experiences with my family and friends. And in doing all that, I don't want to have any anxiety about money. That That's kind of like, that's my image. And I think part of the reason nothing changed is you know, I'm still 28. I still don't have a family yet. None of these massive purchases or things have come up yet. But in the same sort of way, and I think it's what's making me realize a lot of this like money and security and anxiety is, is um, irrational. 
I think I still have as much insecurity or anxiety about money today as I did before the transaction. I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next to listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors then you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audiobook that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio peaks the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Wow. Um, which is such a fascinating thing. Have you listened to Ramit uh, Sethi's podcast? I, so I've read some of Ramit's stuff. I haven't listened to the podcast. Podcast is great. I know I'm using my podcast to rave about his, but I was just listening to an episode the other day where it was a, a two, like a couple, they work at tech companies. They've been successful. They have a net worth of $8 million and they comparison shop for blueberries, right? Like they're sort of stuck in this cycle. Um, I think we all get sort of get scripts or ideas about money or uh, what it means or what it will do for us. And then whether you have $80,000 or $8 million, you're still trapped in that thing. It's a, I think you would really like it, but I'm, I'm a big yeah. fan of that podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll listen to it. And yeah. And I think what you said is like, I do think in general, we get trapped in stories as well, right? Like this story in my mind was that, um, money equals success. The more that I have of it, the more successful that I am. Also, the more that I have of it, the less that I have any anxiety around it. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those things where even, even like rationally where, you know, you see those statistics about once someone is making a certain level of income, I can't remember. It depends where you are in the U S like 70 grand. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, Like 70 grand, your marginal happiness per dollar you make goes down significantly. Like you hear that and you rationalize it. But at least for me, it was very hard for me to appreciate that until I lived it. And now that I've lived it. I'm just like, no, no dollar is going to change my marginal happiness. And so I really need to look inward to, to gain a sense of clarity, um, and, and happiness just through my perception of the world. Well, this is really interesting too, because, and I think this is why the Stoics resonate with me more than some of the Eastern philosophers is that, um, 
although there were certainly impoverished Stoics, uh, Epictetus being one, you know, Marcus Aurelius is very wealthy. Seneca is very wealthy. Uh, Cato is very wealthy. Um, Zeno comes from wealth, loses it, and then seems to get a chunk of it back. The idea being that they were like real human beings in the real world who were probably all primed, like we all are, to think that more is better and that yep. you will be happy when you have more. But then, they, but then, unlike a lot of philosophers, they actually got more, right? So it's like very easy to go like, uh, more will be better or to say more doesn't mean anything. But like, it matters if you actually have tested the hypothesis in the real world, not just in the classroom. And you get, you get Seneca basically saying like, look, it's better to be rich than poor in the sense that it's probably better to be tall than short, beautiful than ugly, uh, or to have two arms versus one arm. Yep. Um, if you had your preference, that's what you would do. But you are also at a place where you don't need it either way. So like when the Stoics talk about indifference, we tend to think indifference means you don't like it, which is obviously the definition of what indifference does yes. not mean. For the Stoics, indifference was like good one way or the other. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it totally makes sense. And, um, you know, as I was reading both books and, and and I think about this general generally as like I'm kind of practicing call it like my inner work is so much of what I'm trying to do is just like unlearn the expectations, anxieties and like regrets that the world has taught to me and not necessarily intentionally. Um, but like in so many ways, when I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, practicing whatever it may be like controlling things I can control or living in the present or, um, you know, um, separating like my reactions to kind of my final judgments. Like, I don't know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm just trying to live like a child again. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, I, I, in so many ways, when I think about what, when Alex Lieberman was in kindergarten, I would say like Alex Lieberman was his happiest self. Like I, I loved learning in my kindergarten cl classroom with Miss Golo. I uh, was super creative. I remember in kindergarten, like I, I felt like I was the smartest person on planet earth because I took a pen and a highlighter. I cut them each in half. I taped them together. And I was like, I'm a freaking genius. I just made a pen highlighter two in one. And like, I'd go on the playground. I'd play with kids. I'd laugh a ton. I wouldn't be think I, I wouldn't be thinking about like, Oh, yesterday. Um, when Sally said something mean to me in kindergarten class, I still really am dwelling on that. Or I wouldn't say to myself, Oh shit. Like, am I going to do well in kindergarten uh in terms of my final grade at the end of this year like those were never thoughts right and and so obviously it's not realistic because we live in a, a society where expectations progress like it is both measured and it's how society's structured but like there's so many things i admire about the way i was able to live when i was in kindergarten well, yeah, I think I think there's a certain uh, presentness to children, an openness to children, uh, an acceptance to children, even though they throw tantrums about things. They're just sort of like they're sort of, I think, aware of how little control they have. So there's like, oh, this is where we're going. OK, you know, um, and, and there is, a, I think, what comes from that are some things you don't necessarily think about as stoic, but like sort of joy. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, it, it, it is a more, you know, the Stoics talk about living in accordance with nature. And I think children are more in that state, the, 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 the connection to the sort of world. Whereas like we live in this, uh, place where we think we're in control. We have things we're trying to do. We have what, what the Buddhists call willful will. And I think that is the, at the root of a lot of our unhappiness. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and it's even like, I don't know, I was just thinking about how one of the things that really, uh, stuck with me in terms of like desiring and focusing on the things that are within our complete control, right? It's, it's such a obvious point when you say it out loud, like, oh yeah, obviously I'm only going to focus on the things I can control. But then when you actually reflect on the things that drove your emotions in the last 24 hours, how many of those things were based on what you could control? Uh, yeah, most of what you spend your time on is stuff that's not in your control. Like it's that, it's not just like, oh yeah, let's focus on what we control. That's really obvious. And then it's like, okay, but what did I spend the majority of my time energy and emotional energy on in the last 24 hours. It was the opposite of things that are in my control. Yeah. And I would say for me, like the vast majority of it is like anticipatory anxiety where it's like when I would be managing people within morning brew and I would need to say hypothetically tell them that they're not doing what's expected of them in work. It, especially in the early days when I was a first time manager, I would default to not saying the thing because I'd be so concerned about how they would react. But like that's that's kind of like not my thing to own. My thing to own is how can I deliver this in a way that is clear and empathetic and compassionate? But I can't worry about how someone is going to respond to that if it's going to impact my ability to do what I think is most important and is within my control. And like I feel like that is the story of 90% of managers. Yeah, I think that's right. Um well and and I think the the idea to me where stoicism really fits well in the idea of of management and you know the stoics were managers with back to marcus aurelius he's the manager of the largest empire in the world is like you wake up and shit goes wrong that is like the, that is the entrepreneur's life is it's never going the way you want it to go and you're forced to improvise adapt accept you know change around what's happening in the world and what's happening with your people. Cause that that's, I think the tricky part about running a company is that it is dependent on a bunch of people who you do not control, even though you're their boss, you do not control them. You don't control what they think. You don't control what they have, you know, how quickly they do there. It's this thing that you're only nominally the head of, and you have to figure out how to make it work. However imperfect it is. I have, I, I'm not sure if you know the, the answer to this, but like something I've thought about, you know, uh, how kind of the Stoics would, would think about this is like you just mentioned, like shit hits the fandom work all the time. And I think, um, actually my, my thing that happened that was very adaptive and it served me well, but I think there's trade off to it is. I learned how to become kind of like numb to sh shit hitting the fan and work. Meaning something would go horribly wrong and I'd always be like, oh, it's fine. We're, we're going to figure it out. Like that would be kind of my default is I would literally sure. not experience the experience because I needed to stay level-headed and fully objective. But I think there's a trade-off to not 
fully feeling your emotions or experiencing that emotion in a way that is productive. Do the Stokes say anything about like how to, uh, I guess, feel or experience your emotion, but do so in a productive way where it doesn't hold you back? Well, I think so two things. So one, yeah, that is obviously the job of the leader because if shit hits the fan and then the leader freaks out, like where does that leave everyone else, right? Totally. Like it, it's sort of like if the parents are handling it badly, then the kid either is in real bad shape or the kid has to then go do the adult job, which isn't fair, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the, the there is a higher standard for the leader. And, and Seneca talks about this in his essay on anger. He's like, look, Normal people in smaller positions can be angry, have feuds, get worked up about stuff, et cetera. But you, the emperor, he's writing uh, mostly to, to Nero, it seems like, you can't. You can't. It's too expensive for you, right? Like too much is dependent on. So you have to sort of be more controlled than the average person. But Seneca also talks about sort of generally with emotions, this idea that like there is the immediate reaction, uh, fantasia. Uh, the, the, that you feel like if somebody jumps around a corner and scares you, um, you can feel that. It's just, what do you do in reaction to it after? So right. to, again, to go to the idea of, of, of anger, like if someone says something hurtful or some employee really screws something up, like you could be upset. This thing just cost you, you know, um, a million dollars, but the decision to call them into your office and chew them out about it or abuse them about it, that is yep. where the line is, right? So it's like, you can have the emotion. You just have to understand that as the leader, you are circumscribed in your ability to act on that emotion. And that this is probably a good thing, right? Like the idea is to process that emotion, figure it out instead of just dumping it on someone which totally. I'm very guilty of myself. So I'm not trying to say this yeah. from some place of, of sageness. Totally. And I think, again, the way you put it makes total sense, right? Like you can kind of, you can have both, uh, but you just can't have one impact the other in a way that holds back your ability to uh, run a business or any relationship with clarity of thought. Um, I, I will say, at least from my own experience, I found it very difficult at times to create that delineation where it gets blurred. And sure. I think out of fear that I will act emotionally, I end up acting, I would say more like a robot than someone who's overly emotional. Well, this is something that, that I, that I've benefited from in mindfulness and in meditation, the idea of like, you're having like, so you're sitting there and you're trying to have no thoughts. Right. And so the mind's like, here's a thought, here's a thought, here's a thought, right. That's just, sort of witnessing that this is what your mind does. Yeah. And then uh, what, what they teach in mindfulness is the idea of going like, yes, you're having the thought, but you don't have to accept the thought, right? Like the idea of seeing thoughts as sort of clouds in the sky, they're there, you acknowledge them, but you don't try to grab hold of them. You just sort of totally. let them come in and out of the frame. And like, this is something I've been dealing with, with just like how screwed up the world is right now. It's like, this, you know, it looks like the Supreme Court's going to do this and it looks like they're going to do this. And it looks like this is the, the latest on this variant or, you know, here's some awful trend that's sort of looming in the background that you're powerless to do anything about. I'm, I'm trying to remind myself, like, you can have that feeling like that is scary. It's weird. It's disappointing. It's not what I would choose if I had a choice. And then I can just sort of sigh and then get back to what I should be doing. Right. Like totally, you don't totally. you don't have to ang be be ang 
uh, anguished about it. You don't have to be consumed by it. You don't have to pretend it's not there, but you also don't have to give yourself over to it. Totally. Well, I mean, like even it's kind of the same exact thought on call, like the Western side with a lot of the work I do with my therapist, it's around, uh, you know, I, um, I suffer from OCD. I, it's manifested in many, in different ways over call like the last decade of my life. And there are different ways that, um, you can work through or work with OCD. Uh, one way is exposure therapy. The other way is ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's basically, in my mind, acceptance and commitment therapy is kind of a prescribed or labeled version of meditating or practicing mindfulness in the sense that you acknowledge that a feeling is there, but you don't um, extrapolate it to your entire experience. You know, the the way that my therapist has always kind of like uh, explained it, similar to like the cloud analogy or like the meditation analogy of like uh, a moving river with things moving through the river is... It's like if if um, you have like one of those little swimmers in your eye and the swimmer is like in the top left corner, it is there. It is annoying. It is inhibiting your vision a little bit, but it's not blinding you. It is not uh, blocking your entire vantage point. It, it's just there and it's annoying and that's okay. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80. 80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic code space 80. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash stoic. That's netsuite.com slash stoic. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. It's obviously easy to sort of agree in, in theory. And then, of course, when... Uh, it's more than just a swimmer in your eye and it, it, it feels really scary or weird or upsetting, then it's sort of like, you know, getting yourself under control when you, when you relapse. Totally. And by the way, like I think, uh, in without getting too much into kind of like the, the deep discussion about it, like, I, I think we've kind of just seen that on like the world stage with all the, the <clears throat> conversation around, um, around the virus and the vaccines is like kind of all these different viewpoints on what is the right procedure 
to stay healthy and safe, um, where there's so much information, um, there's information overload, but there are also a lot of questions that aren't exactly answered yet, right? Even with the new variant, it hasn't exactly been answered yet. You know, how virulent is it? How easily spreadable is it? And I think when there's ambiguity, when people's health is at risk, things get very emotional. And I think it, it also, it creates a great opportunity for like the separation of emotional and like logical discussion. It creates a great opportunity for that to happen. But kind of to your point, when this is like a very real concern that hundreds of millions of people are experiencing, sometimes it's 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 way easier said than done. Yeah, and I don't know when people will be listening to it, but it's a great example, right? So as you and I are talking, we're like three days into the acknowledgement or the the recognition of the of the uh, the new variant, which has a stupid name. Uh, yeah, it's a great a great illustration of uh, the failures of communication of various agencies in the world that they would pick a long ass variant name that is not clear how to pronounce. Like, why wouldn't they just call it Omni, right? Or Omni or any, like who cares about whether it normally is connected to this alphabet or that? Couldn't be easy. Yes, I digress. Um, What I think is interesting is they're like, look, this is it. We know that it exists. We don't know. We know that obviously it'd be better if it didn't exist, but we don't actually know the implications of it. And we won't know for approximately two weeks. So everyone's going to have to sit in a period of unknowing, right? Which is about the hardest thing you can possibly ask of people. And you've watched even in the last three or four days, people trying to, it's not that they want a shortcut, but they're just like, I know you said two weeks, but could this be the answer? Could this yep. be evident? And so instead of just like, like I was saying, going like, hey, this is there and you're going to have to live your, the next two weeks of your life with this sort of looming uncertainty, People are like, well, what if I doom scroll all day? Will that make the answer come sooner? <laughs> or, you know, what if I just freak out? Or what if I start blaming fingers? Or what if I go into denial about it? And it's like none of those change the fact that you have to sit uncomfortably with this thing for two weeks. And and by the time people are listening to this, it could be the worst case scenario. It could be the best case scenario having revealed itself. But nothing that happened in this period change will have changed that or made one or the other more or less likely and people just really struggle mark surrealist in meditations talks about having no opinion he says you always have the power of having no opinion but that's a power we relinquish you know pretty much all the time so yeah a hundred percent it's uh again it goes back to control there's nothing we can do to control the situation but yeah ambiguity is again like I I have personally struggled with ambiguity for my whole life. And I'm just seeing people who I haven't seen struggle with it in the same way that I have for so long, struggle with it as a function of what's going on in the world right now. And it's like you said, it, it's, um, it is really difficult. Um, and we'll, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but also it's not within our control to, yes. dic- to dictate what's going to happen. The other thing that I, to me that connects stoicism and the pandemic the best, and it's a quote, again, easier said than done, but one of my favorite passages in meditations, Mark Surrealist goes, look, is a world without shameless people possible? And he goes, no, of course not. He says a certain percentage of the people are going to be shameless. So when you meet a shameless person, like, why are you surprised first? But second, like, know that this is one of that percentage, right? If it's one out of a hundred, you met one. Okay. That's one out of a hundred. They, you knew they existed. And I think, and I've struggled with this myself. Like 
there was never a possibility where 100% of the people were going to take the pandemic seriously, where 100% of the people were going to get vaccinated, where yep. 100% of the people were going to do any of these things. And yet we are dismayed every time we meet one of those people. Now, obviously, it, it, there's a difference between 30% of the population and 10%. And there is a certain amount of that that's in the control, if not of us, then of like sort of policy and public culture and how one handles things. And you can influence that number. But the idea that you're, this was, you were ever going to get everyone on board um, was naive and impossible. And so I do take some solace in the like, look, certain percentage of the population is going to be selfish and stupid. Certain percentage of the population is going to be misinformed. Certain percentage of the population is going to be, you know, misled and, and used against their own interests, et cetera. So you've just got to accept that when you meet one of those people. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's so well said. And honestly, like what, what a lot of this just has me thinking about, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently as I think about kind of like my journey and, and also as just, I've consumed your content is just like, just to think about how much just how many more tools you have personally, given all of like the study you've done in stoicism, just to navigate life and everything it has yeah. to offer. And I've done one one thousandth of your study, but I have found even tools already. And I don't know, I've just thought to myself recently, like how amazing of a world it would be when people have these new tools through inner work. And obviously it feels like things like meditation and mindfulness are so much more prevalent today than even say in my parents' generation. But it still feels so incredibly early. And obviously, as someone who's grown up in media for the last six years and just like the power of building a trusted audience and delivering a message that can have an impact, I, I've just thought to myself, there's like, I think there's such a white space for, I don't know, like whether it's ma making stoicism go viral, making mindfulness, making inner work go viral in the sense of like making it approachable to people where it becomes a daily practice at a mass scale. And obviously, I'm assuming that was one of your goals with, you know, things like Daily Stoic. Yeah, of course. Of course. The idea of like, how do you, how do you take these ideas that are um, simple, but perhaps inaccessible at the beginning yep. and bring them to people? Just like, yeah, there's really nothing in Morning Brew that people couldn't find elsewhere. But the point is, the po the, the value proposition is like, now you don't have to find it elsewhere. Like the totally. point is in the aggregation, right? Or in the collection or in the, the lens or the, the angle. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will say, say this, uh, like they'll feel like, oh, why are you reading Ryan's stuff? You should just read the originals. And it's like, literally <laughs> nothing would make me happier, but yeah. that wasn't exactly happening <laughs> at any, uh, uh, you know, uh, significant number until I started doing this, right? Uh, or, totally. or, that was very unlikely, not to take credit for it then, but that was also very unlikely that this chunk of the population that I'm speaking to would have been doing that. Now they are. And so it, it's funny how people can get sort of really snooty about stuff when, when actually it is bringing about exactly the thing they claim to want to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think about content in three ways. I think about it as um, original creation, uh, curation, and, and in that bucket, I put curation and remixing, um, and then translation. And I think 
we put so much emphasis uh, in society on creation that like, oh, I need to be a creator. I need to put stuff out. It needs to be my own original thoughts. I need to be the first person that thought of this. Like the, you know, the newsflash is that like pretty much everything that all of us are thinking of is not an original thought. And that's, that's okay. That's not a bad thing. There have been a lot of people on planet earth that have had similar brains to ours. Um, but I think so much of the value, especially in the fire hose that the internet has afforded us today is in curation, remixing and translation. And that's basically exactly what you've described in the same way, like with thinking like a monk by Jay Shetty. Like I think it did the same thing because I tried reading some, um, Buddhist texts and I couldn't get through it. And, um, I think also the, the, the hard thing here, the harder thing, which I'm interested in how you think about is like with morning brew, um, the, the reason we thought it would stick is because our view is like a 26 year old professional wants to look good in front of their boss. And to do that, they need to know what's going on in the world, but they don't have a lot of time to do that. So like M morning brew is like, uh, like stupidity insurance. So you don't look bad in front of your boss. And so I like every product I think about, I think about how is it uh, a painkiller or how is it a vitamin? And the issue is, is I think some of the most helpful products in the world are vitamins, but people gravitate towards painkillers, things that alleviate pain today. Sure. And so I, you know, in some ways, like I think about stoicism and mindfulness and even personal finance in this bucket of vitamins. And the question is, is how do you create urgency for people to engage in vitamins when the long-term benefit is one that compounds on itself and you don't necessarily see today? Well, I, I went through this with the the trilogy that I did on stoicism, uh, Obstacles Away, Ego is the Enemy, and Stillness is the Key. It was realizing, especially with the first book, it was like, I wanted to write a book about stoic philosophy, but I knew that the vast majority of people were not interested in stoic philosophy. But most people have problems, right? Most like, obstacles are a universal fact of life. And so the idea is, oh, okay, let me present a part of Stoic philosophy as a tool for dealing with yep. obstacles or a solution to your problem. So I was like, very few people, and I, I remember saying this to the publisher, very few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to know about Stoic philosophy. They do say, I have a problem and I need a solution. And so if you can meet people where they are, you can present. So vitamin is, is effectively uh, preventative, right? And I think that's people are bad at sort of yep. uh, prevention. But if you say, actually, this vitamin is a painkiller, right? Then, uh, then you, you... Yeah, it becomes alleviation. Exactly. And so that, that it's like, I want to get you there when you're like, whether it's an athlete who just blew out their knee or it's somebody who just went through a divorce or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I want to get you there. And then you go, oh, this actually is a framework worth exploring more fully and can be applied outside the narrow context in which I was originally envisioning it. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. You seem like you spend a lot of time on Twitter. I was curious about this <laughs> sort of fire hose. I, I've never... Obviously, I have a Twitter account, and we use one for for my account yeah. and daily so. But I just find that I'm never, I never feel better after I've been on Twitter. Oh, I've spent I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and like because so I I would say I got introduced to Twitter, call it two years ago, by that's it, yeah, by my co-founder. 
Um, like, like I knew what it was, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't, uh, really spend time on Twitter. Um, and I, I would say I sometimes feel really good on Twitter and I sometimes feel really shitty on Twitter. And, and the reason I would say the reason I feel shitty is actually not the reason that a lot of people feel shitty. I feel like a lot of people feel shitty because they doom scroll on Twitter. They see sad things happening in the world. They see really polarizing conversations and they're like, what's the world come to? For me personally, that's, that's not what makes me feel shitty. What makes me feel shitty is, is honestly that it is an addictive platform. <laughs> it is addictive just like any other social media. I think one, uh, I procrastinate too much as a function of Twitter. And then I feel shitty because I've effectively not kept my promise to myself of not going on Twitter and doing the thing that I said I was going to do. And then I feel really bad because if I can't keep my word to myself, who am I going to keep my word to? And I think the second reason I end up not feeling great on it at times is because I feel that gravitational pull to look at the likes I'm getting and the retweets. And that is the exact call it like trigger for enjoyment that I don't want to be uh, per perpetuating, right? Like I was even thinking the other day, I would love to create kind of like a tool or a Chrome add-in where I could publish my tweets, but it never shows likes or retweets or comments going up. I All I can look at is the content that I've put out and that's it. And I have to just have a love for the information that I've put out. But you can do that. I mean, that's how I sort of do it, which is that I write all the things that I post, but then when it goes to someone on my team, but even then it just gets scheduled, right? So yeah. like, I don't interact. It's a, it's a one way medium, unfortunately. I wish it could be otherwise, but uh, for yeah. me, it's a one way medium. And I think that is the healthier way. The only thing that I find that, that, um, they, that you could possibly miss out on uh, as a function of making it one way is called like the amazing conversations and connections that happen in DMs on Twitter. So yes. like just some amazing people that I've met, like I wouldn't have connected with you. Especially if, it if you have the check mark, you get, ac it's like, it's like this weird, like side door loophole to connect with people you could never, you would never be in the same room with, you'd never have their phone number. Uh, it, exactly. It's, it's weird. And so a lot of people that I now actively text with every day, just talking about interesting topics, some related to work, some related to Web 3.0 and NFTs, some not related to work at all, and just like kind of the journey that I've just discussed, those happen through originally DMs on Twitter, and those happen on DMs on Twitter as a function of them seeing my content on Twitter. I think that's and how so, we got connected. You tweeted something about stoicism, but then somebody, exactly sent, right. somebody sent it to me because they knew I wouldn't see it. And then I DM'd you and, and here we are. It, exactly. So we wouldn't have gotten connected other way, otherwise. Or if we would, maybe we would have, it just would have happened at a different time. And so yeah. that's the hard thing for me is if I, I think if I treated Twitter in the same way you treat it, there'd be so much benefit. I wouldn't feel really crappy about the validation and happiness I feel from likes and the dopamine hits. And I wouldn't feel like I'm not keeping my word to myself, but I would feel like um, I've deprived myself of a form of community building and connection. And maybe one could argue you could accomplish that elsewhere, um, but I just haven't figured out a great alternative yet. No, I, I get it too. I, I find Instagram seems to be a platform that you get 
most of the benefits, less of the the. That's the, interesting. The, the aftertaste, and you still get the same sort of D, DM benefit, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah I just I, I just got I just got a big build a bigger audience on uh, Instagram then I guess because I'm not getting access to to uh, cool people to to DM with. I, I just find Twitter is sort of radicalized, like otherwise thoughtful people. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it's like Twitter is overtly political, whereas like Instagram and the other networks yeah. have a political component, but it hasn't, the, 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 the tail isn't wagging the dog. And so like, I remember in the early days of Twitter, I was actually in Austin in 2007 at South by Southwest when Twitter, uh, launched. I remember wow. I was with Tim Ferriss and, uh, Tim was like, I, I was like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And, <laughs> Tim invested in it. So I guess that, that uh, shows the difference between us. But I, I remember, uh, like people used to talk about pizza on Twitter and there was jokes and it would like Twitter wasn't the sort of toxic cesspool that it's become. And I think there is a part of these networks where you sort of like, you get something out of them and then the ratio twists and you gotta, you gotta be able to be like, yeah, I'm getting off this. To totally. And by the way, the, the last thing that I didn't mention that I, I find to be particularly um, unhealthy about Twitter for me is again, all of us in life do some level of social comparison. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm constantly thinking about how can I build more internal sense of self? So that kind of like that voice can be quieted a little bit, but I find that it is, definitely um activated in a re very real way on twitter and i think that's a function of the crowd that hangs out on twitter mm -hmm. uh, because twitter is so like has such a concentration of like venture capitalists uh venture backed startups and other founders honestly <laughs> there's there's a feeling of like lack of success that i feel where i see some of these people that i engage it's almost like it's the the double-edged sword to amazing access is like i get incredible access to unbelievable founders and vcs but on the other side i'm like shit i've only built one business and i'm talking to these people that have built four billion dollar companies like what am i doing with my life and i think that's a really unhealthy thing that um i find as well yeah no it sounds like i think i'm very suspicious of things that are motivated by fomo and yep. so like you're saying like, well, what would I miss if I wasn't on it? I'm like, okay, that's like a good thing to not do. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I think, uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think almost like another way to frame this is like, how could I find great connection and community without the trade-off of my mental health? <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, let me ask you then, uh, other than Morning Brew, what does, because this is another, I think, source of misery and, and uh, 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 dis disorientation for people, is what does your media diet look like? As someone who sort of does this professionally, but also yeah. probably has peered behind the curtain a little bit, what does your media diet look like? I would say the vast majority of what I consume is um, bookmarks that I've bookmark bookmarked on Twitter. It is what do you what does uh, that mean? So so as in like I've you know my cure like I have the people that I follow on Twitter when Twitter's I see like something your newspaper. Yeah, exactly. And when I see interesting stuff that I follow, I'll bookmark it. And now you can have folders in your bookmarks. So I have one folder for entrepreneurship, 
one folder for mindfulness and spirituality. And I, every day when I dedicate time to consumption, I go to those folders and I go through the content. Um, and, and, you know, typically like tweet threads have become a big thing, right? Like a, yeah. a string of tweets. That'll be a lot of times stuff that I'm bookmarking. So that's one. The sec, the second would be just like close connections, friends, contacts that I'm like texting with, uh, just sharing articles and things for me to read. So referrals. Um, and then the final one, honestly, I, I read so, uh, a bunch of essays. Like I actually don't like reading <laughs> this. This sounds so ironic because it is. I don't read that much news. Yeah. Um, like I read the brew every day. I read maybe one or two other newsletters, but for the most part, I would say 95% of my media diet is ever gray or evergreen things that were written a while ago or have a longer shelf, right? Life and a site I always go to, to read essays is it's called read something Oh, I've never heard of this. And, and it's amazing. It's basically, it's a website that has uh, manually curated essays and uh, it offers you five at a time. And it's always the same categories. The first category is living better. The second category is business and tech. The third category is history and culture. The fourth is science and nature. And the fifth is wildcard. And basically it's essays that have been vetted by the person who created this site. They, you know, they range from being a two minute read to a two hour read. And I just find amazing content here. And what I love about this is it helps me with discovery of great writers. And then once I find a great writer, I'll go down the the writer rabbit hole and I'll just read everything by them. And that actually leads me to another site, which is called alias.co. And al honestly, you may even be on alias.co. Let me see. I've um, never heard of it. Oh, uh, no, you're not on it yet. Um, basically, it's a site that allows you to go down uh, the rabbit hole of people. So you go into alias.co and it has a whole directory of people. So for example, right now I'm looking at uh, Bology. I'm looking at Paul Graham. I'm looking at um, uh, Reshma Sajani, the uh, founder of Girls Who Code. And it has every podcast, YouTube video, tweet, and essay that they have ever appeared on or written. And so it's like, if you want to study the mind of a person, it is the place to to study the mind of people that have been curated. Interesting. Yeah, this is cool. So wait, so you have to join Alias or they no, decide who is featured on Alias? They they decide who's featured. So I think I think as they're spending time on it, uh, like if if you go to the search bar, right, you can look up your name and you'll see it says notify me. I think they basically say once a certain person has had notify me clicked a lot of times, it's their signal to curate that person's content. And so I think right now, you know, they probably have uh, uh, 50 people on here. And I think their goal is just to expand it over time. But to me, it's like the combination of read something great reveals really interesting people who, uh, who think in a new way that gets me to think differently. And then if these people are on Alias, I'll go down the rabbit hole of everything they've created on Alias. Right. No, this is interesting. I like... um I, I like read something great. Uh, this is cool too. I, I do like, I do like sort of people who write long form stuff. That's kind of why I like podcasts too. Like the idea of, of a sort of medium that's not dependent on virality. It's just dependent on sort of, uh, quality. Yeah. Or, or, but also it's just like, it's in depth and the fact Exa that exactly. 
Yeah, it, it tends to create better stuff. And by the way, this is like one of my whole thoughts of it's such an interesting thing that like other than for commoditized content, I rarely use Google anymore. And so like the best content on the internet sits in like the nooks and crannies of the internet, usually through referral or curation. And it's just so interesting that like I have to do all these steps to find the most interesting stuff because it's never going to be the stuff that shows up on Google. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny because these two sites you mentioned are like the opposite of Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Maybe, maybe uh, I should just spend more time on these sites unless on I, Twitter. I think so. Uh, yeah. I think so. No, that's fascinating. What newsletters do you like? So, um, obviously morning brew. Um, I like, uh, James Clear's newsletter, mm -hmm. um, th three, two, one. Um, I like not boring. So Packy McCormick's newsletter. Um, he just, he, he analyzes, uh, basically tech trends and, um, up and coming startups. Um, I love Ben Thompson. I just think he's like one of the smartest thinkers about technology companies. Honestly, I'm looking for more in my newsletter diet that isn't, doesn't have to do with business that either has to do with, again, like psychology, mindfulness, mental health, et cetera. So if you have any recommendations, I'm interested in those, but those are my top few. Well, I may recommend the, uh, the daily stoic email, which goes out uh, every morning. And it's one thought about stoicism. Uh, what, what do I like for now? What do I like that's not? I like. Uh, do you like Maria Popova? She she does. Brain oh, is that pickings. brain pickings? Uh, yeah, she just I, changed the it. name. I, uh, I think you'd like that one. Okay. I like uh, this one's more business, but Matt Levine's uh, yeah, newsletter. Yeah, he, he's great. Ah, uh, dude, he's because even though like I, it, it would seem very Wall Streety, but it, it's uh, it's actually uh, he's just he's hilarious. Yeah, he's hilarious. He's hilarious. He has a great sense of humor. I've always thought to myself. If he went off like away from Bloomberg and onto like Substack's platform, he would be the number one uh, supported writer on Substack. Yeah, probably because he could charge like five hundred dollars a year for it. Exactly. Because, yes. Exactly. Um, no, his is great. I like. Um, I like uh, uh, Emily Oster. I mean, this is more of a parenting thing, but Emily Oster's is fantastic. It's it's I've a never parenting heard of one. Her. Let me see. Um, who else do I like? Yeah, uh, I'm not, I'm not a parent yet. So I may have to bookmark this for when I end up be, becoming a parent. I do a parenting email each day, each, each morning too, called daily. Dad. Oh, nice. Those are like my, those are the two that I write. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I think that's a good point. I wish there was more non political, non business sort of daily, uh, or, or weekly or whatever, just sort of thoughts about, uh, life or, uh, psychology or trends or business or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking there, uh, there could be a cool, I have a few newsletter ideas that, um, I, I haven't started, but I think would be amazing. One being like just a positive email, like <laughs> literally just like, like, like three things that make you smile to start your day, like a, a quote, a picture, a video, um, that just get your day going with momentum and realize how, uh, and allow you to practice gratitude through example. I think that's right. I like I like Tim's uh, Five Bullet Friday. I think that's yep. that's I get a lot out of that one. And then actually, uh, one of my uh, the 
one of my, he started as my research assistant and now he, he does content for Daily Stoke, but he has one called Six at Six, uh, where okay. it's like six things every Sunday. Um, I like I that. Just, it, and I, I like that one a lot. Um, where do I because, find that? Uh, let me see. Let me see how, I don't remember. Just uh, let me get the name. Um, okay. Here, you can let me know later if you want. Just It's billyoppenheimer.com. It's called Six at Six. Okay. Uh, for everyone who wants to sign up, but no, I, I think, uh, I guess what we're, what we're hopefully kicking around as we wrap up is that there's a business opportunity and a market opportunity here for people who can create content that does not make people angry at the world when they're <laughs> exactly. done reading it, but it, it, it generally improves their life. Or yeah. I was going to say think about. Co- content that invests in yourself and it doesn't have to be investing in yourself at work. Like yes. I, I, I just, um, because I was feeling that need also, I just started a, a book club, uh, yep. with, with founders. Um, but the whole, like my whole thing was you're signing up for this. If you don't want to read business books, we're like, we can, ha- <laughs> we can have discussion or we're going to have a book club, but it's not going to be business books. It's going to yeah. be about everything from like fantasy to historical fiction to poetry. That's right. No, no, that, that, that's true. Um, I, I like that. I like that also. I think books shouldn't just be, uh, you know, about current events. Totally. Well, this is awesome, man. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad we got connected and, uh, this was a good way to get to know each other, I think. Yeah, man. I I love it. I've never done a, an intro conversation in the form of a podcast, but, but I love it. Well, I've, I figured, I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've never had a, like, let's get to know each other phone call that either wasn't a complete waste of time or, (laughs) wasn't so good that it should have just been recorded. Do you know what yeah. I mean? No, so, no, I think it's really smart. Uh, I figured we'd try it, and I think I think it went well. Well, uh, this was awesome, and uh, I'm going to check out all these sites, and uh, we'll, yeah, man, we'll uh, be we'll in touch, and let me, let me know if I can be helpful in any way. You got it. Let me know when you're in Texas. I will. Talk to you soon. You know, the Stoics in real life met at what was called the Stoa, the Stoa Pokile, the Painted Porch in ancient Athens, Obviously, we can't all get together in one place. Uh, first off, because this community is like hundreds of thousands of people and we couldn't fit in one space. But we have made uh, a special digital version of the Stoa. We're calling it Daily Stoic Life. It's an awesome community. You could talk about like today's episode. You could talk about the emails, ask questions. That's one of my favorite parts is interacting with all these people who are using Stoicism to be better in their actual real lives. You get more Daily Stoic meditations over the weekend uh, just for the Daily Stoic Life members, quarterly Q&As with me, cloth-bound edition of our Best of Meditations, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, including discounts. And this is the best part, all our Daily Stoic courses and challenges totally for free, hundreds of dollars of value every single year, including our New Year, New You Challenge. We'd love to have you join us. There's a two-week trial totally for free. Check it out at dailystoiclife.com. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible 
interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 